Do you know the one blog post every expert should have on their blog? Or if you're better off writing a blog or a newsletter? And if you write a book, how the hell do you market it? You're about to find out. Welcome to the I Want to Know podcast. On today's episode, I'm going to share with you some highlights from a recent jam session where I answered those questions from some of my skill session members. In case you don't know, my jam sessions are monthly group coaching calls where skill session members can get help from me on their specific projects. You can learn more and become a member at joshspector.com slash sessions. And just a heads up, if you're listening to this the day it's released, you're going to want to do that this week because the price is going up next week. And you're also no longer going to be able to buy the sessions individually after next week. So go there today, check it out. You'll love it. Now let's get to the first question. Skill Sessions member Brendan McAdams asked me a super specific question I was excited to have a chance to answer. He wanted to know what I'd recommend you write about in your first blog post or newsletter issue. Not only did I suggest what that should be, I also revealed what I think your first 20 posts should be. Here's my take. This is a great question. I like this one. I think the first thing that I would do is I would write a list of 20 questions or problems that you know your target audience is trying to solve or the stuff that you probably get asked all the time or that you know the stumbling blocks for them. And those would probably be my first 20 blog posts in some order because you know it's going to be aligned in theory, whatever it is that you're starting, you have some expertise in that subject. And so that's where I would start, right? What are people trying to figure out? And what's my take and my advice on how to do that? The other thing that you could do in terms of a single post, and I'll drop this in the chat. I find this post format, especially if your business is consulting, coaching, it's in some ways based on your expertise. This post I wrote a while ago called Read This Before You Hire a Social Media Consultant. But really what the post is, is read this before you hire a fill in the blank, whatever you do, or read this before you buy a fill in the blank, whatever you do. And essentially what this post is designed to do is designed for you to express a bunch of things that you feel about sort of the space and where people go wrong. So my take on this was like, in this post, I'm really breaking down. Here's the mistakes that I think people make when they hire a social media consultant. And in a lot of ways, I'm saying like, don't hire one if you want X, Y, and Z or whatever, and you know, that kind of stuff. And then at the end, referencing like, oh, I do this. So what this post does is number one, people looking to try to to hire whatever it is that you do or buy whatever it is that you offer are going to come across this post. It's almost like a manifesto that's laying out how you think about this stuff. And most importantly, how you differentiate yourself from other, in this case, social media consultants or other people in the space. And what's going to happen is people are going to read this and some of those people are going to disagree with it. They're not for you anyway. Other of those people are going to completely agree with it. And now they're going to want to talk to you there. When I write a post that says, read this before you hire a social media consultant, literally zero people are reading that that aren't at least thinking maybe they have a social media problem or they should hire a consultant. It's a very handy post to have because also as you talk to people down the road, it's a great post to be able to sell to people. I mean, not sell to people, to be able to send to people. When they go, oh, I'm curious about your service. I'm looking for help with social media. Oh, well, you should read this because here's how I think about it. It can save you some of that initial back and forth. So that that's probably one of the first posts, if not the first post 
that I would write. And I also think it helps you in your own mind. It's sort of a trick to help you figure out your own position. The second jam session excerpt I have for you today addresses a question I got from Dorothy Steinberg. And it's one of the most common questions I get from writers. What's better, a blog or a newsletter? Or should you have both? My answer might surprise you. Here it is. I have a blog that deals with food and gardening. And it's been okay. I haven't made great money at it, but I, I do fine. I'm in Mediavine and a lot of my money it comes from ad money. And as probably a lot of you know, the helpful content update really decimated a lot of bloggers. It didn't me, but I feel like from what I'm hearing that if I don't diversify, I'm going to blogging is kind of on the way out. And so I'm looking to diversify. And one of the ways that I really want to do it is through newsletters, but I'm not sure how to monetize those in terms of sponsorships mm -hmm. and how to go about how big you have to be to get a sponsorship and mm -hmm. how to go about getting them or if there's another way besides sponsorships. So that's the okay. one. And then after I get that done, I do have a small e-commerce site that I'm going to take on. Okay, cool. So a couple things here. So first of all, I don't agree that blogging is on the way out. So, I, so I'll, I'll start with that. Blogging where you're solely relying on traffic that comes or mainly relying on traffic that comes from Google search mm -hmm. is probably getting tougher. But I right. think it's important to understand that that's not the same as blogging is on the way out and people don't care and don't want to read that stuff. So that's okay. one sort of concept, first of all. The second thing is, I don't think a blog and a newsletter are different things. I okay. think if you have a blog, you have a newsletter, you just maybe aren't sending it. And if you have a newsletter, you have a blog, you just maybe aren't publishing it. So okay. I see a newsletter is just a value delivery mechanism. It's another way to get the content that you created in front of an audience. And mm -hmm. it's, a, in theory, a more reliable way because you're not at the whims of Google changing their search algorithms and all that other kind of stuff. I right. believe, like, for anyone, if you have a blog from day one, you should have a newsletter, quote-unquote newsletter. Even if your newsletter is just sending links or sending whatever you've posted on your blog. It's another way to distribute that content. And by the way, I also believe vice versa. If you have a newsletter, you should have a blog. It should not be that the only way people can access whatever you're sharing in your newsletter is in your inbox. I think both sides are a mistake. So okay. the, the first thing to think about is, as opposed to thinking about, oh, do I need to diversify? Do I need to start this new thing or do this new thing or embrace newsletters? I would think about it as I already have this. I just need to start sending it. I need to have people go, hey, if you this is another way to get my content and get people to sign up and all that kind of stuff. Now, as far as the, the newsletter goes, again, there's a million different ways to do it, right? There's no one right way. So you can have your newsletter just be sending links to content that you've posted. By the way, new or old, because lots of people haven't seen your old stuff either. So it doesn't have to be, if your goal is traffic to your website, because that's the main way that you're monetizing then it makes sense to have a newsletter that's driving them to the website as opposed to just having it read in their inbox. So you might decide from a monetization standpoint that I don't necessarily need sponsors in the newsletter. The newsletter is just a way, just like Google was a way to drive people to your site, 
the uh-huh. newsletter is a way to drive people to your site. Totally. Can amazing. I answer Go something? Yeah. That's I do. I have. That's what I how I've been using my newsletter. Okay. I I do every Sunday. I send out four essentially four links that they can go to my website. And I get about 100 views mm-hmm. to my website each week. So, and that's for ad money. Mm-hmm. My, my concern was that while that's working good and I could promote it better, the ad money might be drying up. So the, the ad money on it. your site. Yeah, because of uh, the way blogging is going. So I, okay. I'm, I'm shifting my idea of how to use a newsletter, I guess. Okay. So... Okay, so that's that's good to know. So how many people do you have on your newsletter at the moment? 2,000. And how much traffic do you get? How many people visit your site in a month? 70,000 a month. Okay, so number one, regardless of what you do business-wise, focus on getting more of those visitors to get on your email list. So no matter what you do, no matter what you're going to monitor, like that's going to help you in a million ways. So if you have 70,000 people coming to your site every month, and you only have, you know, this is, I don't mean to be negative, but this is a different way to think about it is to go, mm-hmm. I, what I actually have is 68,000 missed opportunities. Okay. So well, imagine well. If, if you had, I mean, if you had even, if next month, 70,000 people visit your site and you even converted 10% of them, you would have more than tripled your email list in a month. Okay. So that's the first thing. And that has to do with signup forms and has to do with, especially a great place to start is look at the pages that are most trafficked on your site. Because I'm guessing that you have some pages that are consistently getting the most traffic. Maybe look at like your top 10 most visited pages. Go look at those pages and figure out where can I place signup forms if I'm going to use a lead magnet? What can I do on this page to make sure that these pages that are getting most of the traffic are converting Uh more people into email subscribers? And it'll be some trial and error and testing, but that's a great place to start as opposed to sort of like, yes, you can do some stuff site-wide. But let's see where most of the traffic is coming. And let me really figure out how to sort of optimize those to to convert more of that. Now, from a monetization standpoint of the newsletter, I did an episode of my podcast with Justin Moore. And Emily, you can find the link and, and post to it. He's a sponsorship expert, and it is a fantastic episode. He goes into exactly how to get sponsors for whatever you're doing, for a newsletter, for any of this stuff. You're in a niche where there's lots of people that probably want to reach your audience. So I would recommend watching that episode as opposed to me giving you a bunch of sort of thoughts here. His And literally he goes through like step-by-step, step, here's what to say, here's who to identify potential sponsors. So I would recommend watching that as, in terms of sort of how to go about doing it. In terms of the question, and I think we also addressed that, this in that episode, in terms of how big of an audience do you need, there's no magic number. So What you need is you need the sponsor to get a return on their investment. For different sponsors, that means different things. You need audience fit and audience alignment. And obviously, the more you have, the more you can charge, but also the higher the product price is that the sponsor is selling, the more you can charge, right? So for example, if someone's selling a $5 gardening tool and you're charging $100, they need, theoretically... They need 20 sales to get their $100 back. And they actually uh-huh. need more because they, if it's not profitable, it doesn't really make sense for them to do necessarily. Uh-huh. But if that sponsor is selling a $150 product, they need one sale for the $100 ad to be profitable. Okay. That so, so it's just sort of, t- there's no right or wrong again, but it's something to sort of keep in mind that a lot of times people assume they need this massive audience 
And that's not necessarily mm-hmm. true. You need the fit and you need the abil- ability to sort of drive results. And again, in that episode, Justin, we'll talk about this, but also the idea of thinking about sponsorships in terms of partnerships. Can you find one company, one brand and go, hey, let's partner as opposed to constantly chasing all these different advertisers? Yeah. You know, right. can you find one and go, let's do a partnership for three months or six months? I can help you in X, Y, and Z ways. I understand what you guys want to do and think about it that way, which frees you up from just sort of the like basic, well, how many impressions am I going to get on my ad or any of that kind of stuff? And in that scenario, all you need is maybe one or two partners, again, depending on what it is, as opposed to just sort of chasing any and all things. The other thing that I would mention, and I don't know, I'm not 100% sure. What do you use for your newsletter? Like Uh, convert there. Perfect. So- I don't know if they have a limit on who it's available to or not, but ConvertKit has an ad network where they will sell the ads for you in your newsletter. And it's literally just a snippet that you paste in. So that's another thing to look at. They take a percentage if you're eligible for that. And probably, and even if you're not, they can probably tell you there's probably a certain amount of subscribers you have to have to be eligible or whatever. But that's another option where you can, you know, let them sell it. You don't have to sort of get bogged down in doing all that. That can be, yeah, that can be, that can be a good option. So you should look into that. Uh It's called, I think it's called the Convert Kit Sponsor Network. I think it's called. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. It's one thing to write a book, but it's another to get people to read it. In this jam session excerpt, Skill Sessions member Allie Torbin asks for my suggestions on how to promote her new book. And I've got a few good ones for her. Here they are. So I do have some tips on how to market a book and I'm going to have a bunch more because I am recording a podcast sometime in the next couple of weeks. It probably won't come out for a month or so that is basically going to be all about how to market a book. So if you don't subscribe to my podcast, subscribe I to do. that. And yeah, there you go. <laughs> so that so that should be good. But in the interim, a couple of suggestions for you. So one is, and I've said this before and I never remember where I heard it, but I thought it was really smart. When your book comes out or you have advanced copies, whatever, and you're going to send it to some people, the people that you're going to send it to for free, hoping to get their attention, whatever, give them two copies. Because what's going to happen is they are going to give that other copy to someone that they think is most likely to enjoy it. And essentially, as far as driving word of mouth goes, they're going to be better at finding the audience for you than you will. So where I heard this was someone who had, I think they were a professor or whatever it was. They had written some book that was going to clearly appeal to a kind of specific niche audience, right? So some sort of science professors or whatever it was. So what they did was they made a whole list of professors, sent free books to a bunch of them, knowing that those science professors would know other science professors. They gave them two copies and knowing that those science professors would then pass it on to the other one. By the way, Elizabeth, I I just saw in the chat saying she listened to this and sent me two copies. She did send me two copies. And I, as a matter of fact, gave the second copy of her book to someone as a Christmas gift recently. So the plan worked and that person was excited to read it. So yeah, so that's a simple thing that you can do. Another thing is podcasts can be really powerful. So getting yourself booked on podcasts that have audiences that are going to be likely to enjoy your book. If you haven't watched it yet, we just did a guest skill session called The Podcast Booker, where Christina Nicholson basically broke down how to reach out and get yourself booked on podcasts. 
Really good, really simple. I absolutely think you could do that as a way to get yourself on podcasts to promote the book. And one other note about that I had heard, again, I don't remember exactly where I heard it. It was on somebody else's podcast. There is a guy who has published a bunch of best-selling books, I think independently published. And I want to say his books, like one of them is called like The Miracle Morning or something like that. I think it's like a morning routine thing, whatever. And his strategy, a large part of his strategy was, I think he went on like over a hundred podcasts or something like that in a year. But what he did was he looked for podcasts were in like Apple's new and noteworthy section that were relevant to his, you know, target audience. But the thing about new and noteworthy or his take on it was that that's basically showing you podcasts that are relatively new. So they're probably looking for guests but they have had at least some level of success because that's how they got featured there, right? So he found it to be sort of this sweet spot where it wasn't these massive shows that were, you know, really hard to get booked on, but they also weren't these new shows that nobody was listening to. So that's something to think about. And then the other thing that I would say is there's a great book by Ryan Holiday called Perennial Seller. And it talks about the whole premise of the book is why do some why do some things specifically like creations and you know books, movies, music, all that kind of stuff, why do some things continue to sell forever and other things sort of sell for a little bit and go away? And he looks at all sorts of different things, but it's you know, like why does the catcher in the rye continue to sell, you know, millions of copies every year? And the first half of the book is about what goes into producing works that perennially sells. And the second half is what goes into marketing work perennially sells. Really, really good book. But one of the things he talks about there, and this relates to newsletters, blogs, whatever, but he talks about it as a ladder where it's like each appearance or each coverage that you get, you then use to get bigger. So if, if you take podcasts, for example, every time you get booked on a podcast, you're using that to get booked on a podcast that's slightly bigger and then one slightly bigger than that. And so you're leveraging this coverage that you're getting. Again, you could do it with a newsletter. You could do it with anything, right? Every newsletter that three newsletters cover you, and now you're going to pitch another newsletter and you're able to go, hey, I was you know, mentioned in these three things or these people interviewed me or whatever. So hopefully somewhere in all of that is some stuff that you can try. Yes, thank you. I just downloaded Perennial Seller as you were talking, yeah, so I'm excited to listen. <laughs> really, really, really good. That's a wrap for this week's episode of I Want to Know. What you heard is the tip of the iceberg of what goes on in my skill sessions. So if you'd like to check them out, just go to joshspector.com slash sessions to learn more. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon with another episode of I Want to Know.